You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jeff Hertzberg and Chef Zoe Francois are the authors of Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day and Healthy Bread in Five Minutes a Day. Their new book is Artisan Pizza and Flatbread in Five Minutes a Day. Thank you for joining me, Jeff and Zoe. It's great Thank to you. be here. This is uh, such a fabulous book. And what I like about this is that it's a lot more than just bread recipes. We have a lot of great recipes for dough, but these are recipes for meals. Uh, for flatbreads, for pizzas, for deep dish pizzas. You give us a lot of history here. You tell us the equipment. It's really a complete one-stop shopping, isn't it? We kind of wanted to move into the whole meal. We don't want to be limited to just the bread. So there are, what, five soups kind of from around the world, Um, a bunch of dips that are really from around the world. And, you know, if you have our first book, you've got five salads. So someday we're going to put all this together. (laughs) Now, uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, the tools we need, because when you're cooking uh, pizza and flatbreads, it's a little bit different than what you need. First off, you really want to get the Tupperwares to to keep this bread in. I have like about four different Tupperwares, or about, uh, I think there are two quarts. It's really great. Once you have that, you can just have, you know, you know, a week or two weeks worth of pizzas just sitting in fresh pizza dough, sitting in your refrigerator, ready to go. Yeah, you really, all you really need is a five-quart container. So that can be, like you said, Tupperware. You don't want it actually to be airtight. So any kind of container that has a lid. But you can also do this in a bowl and just cover it with plastic wrap, and that's really fine. We don't want people to feel like they have to run out and get special equipment, but there are some things that make for a really dynamite crust, and a pizza stone is one of them. So if you have a pizza stone, you crank that up um, as high as your oven will get, and that one tool will really, really make for a dynamite crust. Now, I know some people have figured out ways to um, use their, cook their uh, pizzas while the oven is in cleaning mode. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. I, I know people who have sabotaged their oven th- oven. Um, um, you know, relay so mm-hmm. that it wouldn't go off. I, it's definitely a fire hazard. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I published about that in the New York Times. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> now, uh, so, but uh, getting a really hot stone and is in a really hot oven is paramount here. Now, you guys uh, say though you can get this in thirty minutes, right? In a thirty-minute heat up. Yeah, that should do it for a good for a good size stone. Um, if you have a thinner stone, some of those will heat up in 20, but I think 20 is kind of pushing your luck. In our first book, we said 20, and for the pizza book, we wanted it to be really crisp. So mm-hmm. Get it really thin, about an eighth of an inch for a Neapolitan style, and go 30 minutes. If the, if the crust isn't crisping before the toppings are getting overly brown, go for a longer preheat, 45 minutes or even an hour. Some really traditional books say an hour. Mm-hmm. We don't think our readers have an hour. They yeah. want to do it on the way home, like as they walk in the front door, turn from work, turn on the oven, and then by the time you get everything together, it'll be hot. Yeah, but I mean, even if you do want to, you can use an hour preheat, and then you can turn that hour on, turn that thing on, and spend the next forty-five minutes swilling beer and Perfect. reading the comics. <laughs> Perfect. I was afraid you were going to say prepping your ingredients. No, no, we want to do the prep of the ingredients in ten minutes at most. No, no. <laughs> no we have to have our priorities right here. You know, <laughs> it I sounds like, like you do. 
Uh, now, uh, once we've got our, our oven preheating, uh, we, there's a couple other tools that you talk about, the pizza peel and the dough scraper. Uh, let's get, I think we're using the dough scraper first, aren't we? So talk about just, you've made, let's assume you've made your dough. We've got your master recipes and those are pretty great and easy. We've talked about this before. It's, I love this recipe. It's what you call scoop and scrape to make it. Uh, you've got your big Tupperware bowl. Scoop First you put the water and the yeast in, maybe some olive oil. You've got varieties of recipes in there. Put it in the uh, refrigerator overnight. You're done with that. That's four pizzas sort of for a week. Well, that's eight pizzas, eight, actually. Pizzas. Eight, eight half-pound balls of dough. Wow, that's so much. Yeah. That's so great. Let's say the next day we're taking that out. What's our next step? And talk about why it helps to have this dough scraper. Well, one thing is that our dough is pretty wet mm -hmm. um, in comparison to traditional doughs. And so, like you said, we just dump and stir the ingredients together. We let that rise for two hours. After the initial two hours, you can actually use it. And so what we do is we sprinkle some flour over the top just to keep our hands from sticking Take a pair of shears, snip off a piece, about uh, eight ounces of dough, makes a great pizza. And then we use the bench scraper um, to help us either handling the dough because it's wet. You also want to make sure you're using quite a bit of flour under there. A lot of people aren't using enough flour and it gets sticky. Um, the other way that that tool is so great is once you've rolled out your pizza and it's on the pizza peel, you always want to sort of shimmy that uh, dough on the pizza peel to make sure it's not sticking. But if it does, for some reason, you can use that bench scraper to help you ease that off of the uh, pizza peel. The other way that I always use it is I use it to clean off my pizza stone. Mm. Um, so when the pizza stone is hot and I'm baking, you know, two or three pizzas at a time, I want to clean that stone off. I just use the bench scraper to scrape off all of the excess flour or cornmeal. You know, what I found, too, was when you've got a pizza stone that's got stuff kind of burnt on it, you can use the uh, that kind of pumice that you use to clean uh, charcoal with, and it, it's perfect. It, yeah, it's perfect. It cleans off kind of, you know, it won't hurt, doesn't hurt the stone, but it does get some of the stains off. Most of the manufacturers, the only thing to watch out for is don't use soap on it. Most of the manufacturers no. say that'll get, it'll permeate that, and then there'll be a smell. You can use soap on the glazed stones, which, to our surprise, work just as well. The traditional baking method said part of why this works to have a stone is that it absorbs water. Mm. Well, if that were true, you wouldn't be able to get any value out of a cast iron, quote unquote, stone. Those work very well. And so do the glazed stones, and they're not porous at all. So you can try that too. And that, those, those you can use soap on. You talk about the different thicknesses of pizza. So I'd like you to explain uh, how thick our crust should be um, coming out when we, depending on what kind of pizza we want. So the, the thinnest one is the cracker crust, kind of a Tuscan style. And you, it's sort of, in a sense, the hardest to get really good at. So I wouldn't necessarily start with it. But you want to get it to about a sixteenth of an inch, like paper thin. Got to use a lot of flour. Take a small piece of dough. You don't take the whole half-pound ball, maybe a quarter pound or even less. And you've got to get it to the point where you can almost see through it. And you've got to use less cheese and less sauce and into the oven. It's beautiful. We have instructions for that. This, what's become the standard quote-unquote gourmet pizza in the U.S. is the Neapolitan style. And you've got to get it to a quarter, I'm sorry, an eighth of an inch thick. And you do that while well, we do the whole nine yards of the traditional method. We, we, we throw it up in the air. <laughs> we, uh, we get it flat with our hands. We break Italian law by rolling it out with a rolling pin. You're not allowed to do that in Italy. 
Well, there's so, a, I love the pizza laws. Tell us about the pizza laws. So, so, you, so, so pizza napoletana in Italy is a national treasure, and you can't, it's like American Kentucky bourbon. You can't make it in San Francisco. It's, it's against the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I used to make fun of the Italians for this, but we have the same kinds of laws here. Um, it's got to be an eight, what, three to four millimeters thick in, in Italy, which is about an eighth of an inch. You can only use your hands, which takes some doing. If you want to try to do a stretching only with your hands, form the dough in advance, at least a half hour, 40 minutes. We didn't want to say that as our standard method because we want people to be able to walk in the front door and just roll out. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and use a rolling pin in the U.S. <laughs> we um, the we, other thing is sure that do. they don't allow olive oil in the That's dough. That's right. That's and right. And so it can only be uh, the flour, That's water, right. yeast, and salt, which makes a dynamite dough. But it's just these certain things that they hold sort of uh, sacred. Sacred is dough. the word. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'll have you know that they're actually quite flexible about the basil, which is in Pizza Napolitana Margarita. <laughs> um, it's, it, it can either be put on with the pizza in the oven or at the end, but every picture you'll ever see of Pizza Napolitana has it put on at the end, so it looks really fresh, and that's, that's what's on the cover of our book. You can do it either way. You can sliver it or put it whole, and you won't be breaking Italian law. <laughs> but you need, to, if you want to cook it in Italian style, you have to cook it in a 905 degree, 905 degree oven. Right. Wood-fired oven. For, for, for 90 right. seconds. And we highly recommend this for Please people that have these ovens because mm-hmm. they're dynamite. And the pizza cooks in about a minute and a half. Right. So in our home ovens, we say about 8 to 10 minutes, which is, you know, that at seems reasonable to us. Yeah, at 515. If, if you want to make American-style pizza quarter-inch thick, actually much quicker and easier to get to that thickness, and it will load up, you can load up more cheese and toppings and everything you want. American pizzas are starting to look like a salad, and I love that with the arugula mounted on top. Um, and half an inch is, is focaccia, three-quarters of an inch even, and similar for a Sicilian-style pizza crust in a pan. The real trick of pizza I found is getting it off the peel <laughs> and, and right. onto the stone. And I think that what the way to do this, I found at least, is every time you put another topping on, you shimmy the, the paddle. It looks like a paddle to right. me right. Uh, you, to make sure that pizza isn't sticking. Exactly. And you want to make sure that you have either some flour or cornmeal under that dough mm-hmm. um, to help it move around on the peel. But just like you said, as you're putting things on, as you're working with it, always shimmy it around to make sure it's not sticking. The other thing that we really stress in this book is have all your toppings prepared before you roll that crust out and put it on the peel because you don't want to roll the crust out put it on the peel and then go around and, and prepare your toppings because by the time you get back your your dough is going to be pretty sticky so mm. roll it out have all your toppings ready to go and that way it'll slip into the oven pretty quickly now uh, one of the other things too is to just not use too many toppings less is more in this matter in italian style anyway for some American-style pizzas, especially if you're doing them in a heavy-gauge flat pan rather than the pizza peel, you can get away with more, and we're not against that. <laughs> you know, we're not purists about Italian-style pizza. We're, we're American. Yeah, my 12-year-old son makes pizzas start to finish by himself, which is amazing to see him getting into the kitchen to do this. And I have a hard time stopping him from putting a lot of toppings <laughs> on them. So really, you can create what you want, but it will make it you know, a little bit more difficult to work with if you really load them on. So be careful with that. Now, uh, one of the things uh, Jeff and I were talking about earlier is the tomato sauce. Because if you're making this fabulous 
fresh crust. Using the, you know, Chef Boyardee, it just seems like... Not my first choice. Right. Not your first choice. But by the way, it does work. <laughs> I mean, if you have good enough cheese, you might not notice it. Go easy with the sauce. I mean, the if you've got garden tomatoes, garden Roma tomatoes from your backyard in the summer, just pick them and either just use them sliced. That's probably the pretty much the best food in the world with fresh mozzarella. Um, or make it into a sauce. Personally, I don't peel tomatoes. I just put the peels and everything right in there. Um, there are delicious canned tomato products now available in the United States. And we sort of prefer the Italian style of relatively austere sauce and have your toppings carry all the fantastic flavor. But you can put whatever you want to spice up that, that tomato stuff that you're buying. In the supermarket usually is what I use because it's not usually August. Uh, tomatoes in Minnesota where we live. Um, so canned tomatoes that are whole that you put through the blender, canned tomatoes that are whole that you drain and just break up so you have larger pieces. It's very forgiving of what kind of tomato topping. If you're making a thin crusted pizza, don't load up the tomato because it's got water and it'll make the crust soggy. Now, uh, one of the things we uh, that uh, you talk about, and I think it's really great I, that I love about this book, is you get us talk about, you know, to divvy up the different kinds of cheese. And, and this is what's nice about a book like this is that you kind of learn something. I mean, I see cheese and I, you know, I get it on a cheeseburger or something, but to see it all divvied up like this and the different types is really kind of a learning experience. And so, of course, everybody wants mozzarella cheese. Mm -hmm. But uh, you point out the, the, the queen of the mozzarella, and I've tried this too, is the buffalo milk. Mm -hmm. It's expensive, but I think it's really worth it. Yeah, and it's, it has this sort of luscious creaminess inside. But one thing about it is that when it's baked, it lets go of quite a bit of liquid. And so when you're using that particular cheese, you want to use it pretty sparingly. Mm. Um, and you can just nibble on it as you put it on there. But it's so amazing and so delicious. People should definitely try it. One thing that we realized when we were baking, um, uh, creating this book is that if you put your fresh mozzarella on in chunks as opposed to thin slices or even sh uh, shredding it, um, what happens is those big chunks take longer to melt and so we found that we were getting a really beautiful sort of caramelized crispy crust before the cheese was melting and burning and so keeping it in a nice big chunk like that is really essential when you're using fresh mozzarella and also too i found when you're using anything that's come suspended in liquid it always helps to just take it out if you cut it into the chunks you're going to use and put it on a a paper towel for 10 minutes yeah, or something to drain idea. it yeah. and that yep. gets some of the liquid out yep. and yet you still have all that right. creamy we do, delicious flavor. We do recommend they use a little less buffalo than they would ordinary fresh mm -hmm. and both of those fantastic cheeses contain more water than supermarket mozzarella so if you really don't like the liquid you're getting, try it with supermarket mozzarella but just, just once or twice then go back to the fresh. <laughs> now you, you talk about the different kinds uh, of cheese. We also have uh, Asiago, which you say is there's, uh, it's the chameleon of cheeses. Yeah, I like that yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a sort of meaty taste. It's the chameleon of cheeses in Italy. We're not sure you can get all the different kinds, whether sort of a more fresh product compared to the aged in the U.S. My guess is you're more likely to get it in San Francisco than we find it in Minneapolis. But when you use the sort of more fresh version, you can use it in place of mozzarella. Um, if you get the sort of more aged one, it's going to operate more like, like, um, Parmigiano-Reggiano. Um, and we talk about this sort of spectrum of cheeses in the book, from the dry cheeses like Parmigiano, which have to be grated 
to the more wet cheeses like mozzarella and softer ones. And they all work on pizza. I mean, cheddar cheese works on pizza. And if you find an aged cheddar cheese, like an English style, mm -hmm. this is going to be sort of a more expensive cheese. It is going to be unrecognizable as American cheddar, and it makes a fantastic pizza. Oh, wow. Now, yeah. that's interesting. And, and uh, you can also, I, I like uh, the blue cheese pizzas, too, mm. which is very nice. It's a, it's a very different flavor. You also talk about uh, a couple different kinds of meat, uh, prosciutto and soppressetta uh, sausage with salami, which I think is really good, and, and it's hard to find, though. Um, yeah, it is a little hard to find. I mean, the f I first had it in Little Italy in New York. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's sort of the, the forerunner of American pepperoni, which is not an Italian product at all. It's an American invention. I think mm -hmm. they invented it in like 1955 in, in Illinois somewhere. <laughs> um, it's that, it tastes like it. It tastes a little bit like that. Um, so soppressata is a very peppery cheese, though, similarly. And you can Thanks. use... What, what's becoming fashionable right now in, in really high-end pizzerias is to put just sheets of this stuff on a tomato and cheese pizza, and I really like that. It's oh. very nice. Now you can, uh, it, it, there, there are places, you, it's not that hard to find though, and it's really worth uh, seeking out. Now, uh, you taught, one of the things too, I, I always kind of got mixed up. I always thought that deep dish and Sicilian pizzas were the same thing, and they're not. So I'd like you to explain the difference to the listeners. Um, Sicilian style pizza is a thicker crust, and so the one that we do in our book, it's about a half inch of dough on the bottom. And that's before cooking? That's before the cooking. Oh, right. wow. Okay. Right. And so we put about a half inch of the dough in a pan. We tend to do this one. They tend to do this in big rectangles. So we do this in a big um, sided cookie sheet. Um, a heavy gauge pan is really uh, key to getting a nice crust on these. Um, and then we layer up the toppings, and we even let that rest a little bit in the pan before we load it up with our toppings. A deep dish pizza, like a Chicago-style deep dish pizza, is a rather thin crust, but then you're loading that up. Um, you're usually doing it in sort of a cake pan, or they make a special pan for a deep dish Chicago-style pizza. And so it's a thin layer of the crust, but then you're loading it up with all kinds of uh, tasty sausage or meats or uh, for vegetarians. You can really load it up with just about anything. And some of them you can even cover. So you have sort of a, we have one that's an Italian torta, which is Oh yeah, the torta is delicious. Up. It's really a gorgeous um, tort, really. And you slice into it and you have all these layers of vegetables and cheese and um, it's really quite stunning. I, I actually made the Chicago deep dish thing in a, a, a kind of a magnolite fry pan I have. It's a heavy it thing. It was perfect. Yeah, it, was head, it, it was exactly the right shape I had. And uh, So talk about the cornmeal crust, which is, that's really unusual. I've never seen that before. This is something that's really specialized to the Chicago style pizza. And they've created this cornmeal crust and it has this sort of it's made with olive oil, but it has this buttery feel to it, this buttery taste as well. Um, and so it, it has just a much richer sort of earthy flavor. And 
This is absolutely my kids' favorite. So I end up making all kinds of pizzas with this crust, but it's, you know, we, we have a number of different style crusts. We have whole wheat, um, we have a spelt dough, we have this uh, cornmeal crust. And so we really were playing with, not only is it the toppings that make the pizza, but the crust can really change the personality of a pizza. So the same toppings on a spelt dough as a cornmeal will just be an entirely different experience. We should also remember to say we've got gluten-free in there. I was just going to ask you about that, yeah. Jeff. Talk about the, the gluten-free pizzas and sure. you know the health benefits of that for <laughs> Well, those for of some us. people. <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't know who they are, but there are more and more people trying a gluten-free diet in the U.S. We know something like a something less than 1% of Americans are really celiac and shouldn't eat gluten at all, and that's definitely this is definitely for them. So they're always made in our books. Our second book had a lot more uh, gluten-free, a whole chapter of them. That we, we found they work much better with a mixture of grains, rice, sorghum. Uh, what were the other ones? Uh, corn, um, right. Uh, tapioca. tapioca. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got a sweet and a savory in the pizza book. And, you know, I don't know medically what to tell people who don't have celiac but feel better off wheat, except to say I don't argue with success. <laughs> and if you feel better off wheat, some of the best gluten-free baked goods you'll make are pizzas because it isn't just the grain flavor. It's the grain flavor as a base for all these savories. Mm -hmm. And we know, we know people who we've fooled with gluten-free pizza, and we just didn't tell them, and they amazingly taste the... The toppings, it's really fantastic. With all of our gluten-free breads and pizzas, we made them so that people really didn't know the difference. I fed all of these to my family and they didn't know that I was feeding them gluten-free. So they're gonna have the same experience with this pizza. Rick, just so your listeners understand, most of the doughs in our book, in the pizza book, are wheat-based. Mm -hmm. But we do have these two and every topping in the book can go, I don't think there are any exceptions to that, can go on the gluten-free base and so you're set. Now uh, it's a lot more than just pizza in this book. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about the the pitas and flatbreads. With our first book we had a naan that we cooked in a skillet. You mm -hmm. can do this in a skillet. You can do the pita. Our pitas uh, are mostly done in the oven. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have all we have several different kinds of pitas in there. We have Middle Eastern pitas. Um, when I, I went to Turkey recently, and there was just this world opened up to me of pitas, different styles, different types. A lot of it is how you bake the pitas, mm -hmm. and so we go into some detail about different styles and different ways to bake the pitas. But you can do really all of our stuff on in a skillet. We talk about baking a pizza or cooking a pizza on the stovetop. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that we finish off that crust is to throw it under the broiler at the very end and that gets you the crispy crust. The same could be said for doing pitas. And this also brings up doing all these things on the grill because these things can also happen on the grill. Yeah. We never stop baking. <laughs> I, I, I need to bake a bread every day and sometimes twice. And so when it's 98 degrees in Minneapolis, most people don't know it actually gets really hot in the summer. Mm -hmm. um, I just fire up the covered gas grill and I go outside and I either do pizza or a flat type pita bread every day. So you can do it direct or indirect. It's much easier on a gas grill than on a charcoal grill, but mm -hmm. you can do it. And I know people have succeeded. Mm -hmm. And I know people have succeeded, succeeded with the big green egg. We haven't personally tested that mm -hmm. ourselves. 
but it works very well from the sort of people we have doing testing for us. I use a gas grill. I use a little bit of indirect, a little bit of direct. Flip it in about three minutes over medium heat after preheating it on high. Uh, about three minutes on a side, and you're basically done. Now you can you can get fancy and actually do a pizza out there. So you've got to bake that blind. So you've got to start cooking it like a pita. Flip it when it solidifies. Then do your toppings and close it as quickly as you can and try not to look for three minutes <laughs> or until you smell smoke. <laughs> but it works really well once you get to know your grill. You mentioned that you're talking about a Chinese flatbread called Bing, right? Yeah, a, I love that. There's bing. a technique that's actually common to the Middle East too where you roll out a very flat bread. You, you put oil and fillings, actually chicken fat and, and uh, scallions in the case of the Bing, and, and uh, you can put sesame. Then you roll it up into a long sort of rope, mm -hmm. and then you coil the rope around itself, and you flatten that out again. It's a little bit hard to understand this with radio. We don't have video here. <laughs> um, but that is absolutely fantastic. So try that. No, we usually do those in a skillet. That's what you're talking about with a skillet. Mm -hmm. um, so the bing gets done in a, in, a, in a flat skillet. It is not a low-fat bread, but it's delicious. I'm <laughs> not, not you know, to a low-fat diet. Yeah, I'm not right. either. I'm not. <laughs> Much to my regret. Just don't eat the entire, don't eat the entire, entire thing. Don't eat the entire thing in one sitting. If you want to make it with sesame oil, I guess I can say it's very healthy oil right. to be eating. And also the pitas, to go back to the pitas, we have um, stuffed pitas too, um, and also this uh, Turkish flatbread with lamb and spices, and then you finish it off with parsley and a squeeze of lemon, and then roll it up like a crepe. And so there's all of these amazing, amazing flatbreads that are happening around the world that probably are as popular in those countries as pizza is here. And so this is the part of the book that we're really excited about, is to introduce people to a whole new genre of flatbreads, and we're hoping that these are going to become the next pizza craze. Well, I think that's uh, one of the things that's nice about uh, lots of the recipes in this book is that this is, you know, uh, uh, as I said, it's a one-stop shop. It's a me These are meals in and of themselves, and they're, right. they're really nice, and they're fun to cook. And they look, uh, the other thing is, too, is that these present very well. I mean, to serve uh, up a fresh homemade pizza or, or some of these fresh flatbreads, the fugas. I made the fugas with the with the mm. peppers in. I mean, it's just incredibly delicious, and it looks like something you pay thirty dollars for. It's so easy to make, <laughs> and it's right. so easy to make, it's and it costs racket. like about ten cents. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, that's right. Our our typical pizza, depending on the toppings, is about a dollar to make at home. So, I mean, if you go crazy with your toppings, you can get probably up to two dollars, but. Um, it's really inexpensive to be baking this stuff at home, and it's the ingredients are are amazing and fresh, and you know local. If if that's uh, you know if you can get stuff fresh and local in the summertime, but really this is a very economical way to eat really beautiful food. Even for organics, it's no. I, we were doing this calculation like a dollar seventy a pizza. That's not bad. That's all that yeah. I mean <laughs> for organic right. food. You can see why there are so many pizza joints around the world. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a Basically, high profit margin. Bread, yes, cheese, and a little vegetable, and it's like the world's food. One of the things I think that's so interesting too here is that again, we're not just cooking pizzas and flatbreads. There's also desserts, and I got to say this: skillet apple pie <laughs> to die for, and so so bitching to serve too because yeah. people just absolutely do not expect you made the whole book basically it makes me very excited to think about that deep dish pie 
How did you, where did you come up upon that recipe? Well, I have to, my training is as a pastry chef. And so basically everything I, you know, think about is pastry. <laughs> and butter. And butter. <laughs> and, you know, I, I love pie. And so we, what we did was we took our brioche dough and we basically made the deep dish Chicago style with brioche and then filled it with either apples or peaches and it bakes up beautifully and it's so simple and the crust is so easy to work with. Um, we also have this it's apple. It's actually easier than a real apple pie exactly. to tell the truth. It's a lot easier, easier to make, it's easier to work with and I find it equally as delicious. And uh, we also have an apple blush tart, which is just, if you haven't tried it, it's beautiful. And, and it's not in the book, but this is a, a suggestion for you because you mentioned blue cheese. After you make this apple blush tart, just put a little bit of blue cheese on top of it and it is amazing. Wow, no, that sounds really nice. Now, uh, I'd like to to just ask you about you know crafting the recipes in this book. Um, for example, the lamb. Talk about finding that, researching it. You know, you might see it on the street, buy it on some travel to some place and buy it on the street and say, well, this looks good. Now I've got to go home and figure out how to reverse. Do you reverse engineer stuff yes. that you buy? Yes, absolutely. We find inspiration everywhere um, at the market in restaurants um, my cousin is a chef in New York City and he has um, in his restaurant a caramelized onion and chev tart made in a traditional you know short crust uh, you know like a pie crust and I fell in love with this with this tart and so we took those flavors and made it into a pizza and it's incredible it's an absolutely incredible so so we'll take things that aren't pizzas but we just love the flavor combinations the thing that you were talking about is uh, this Turkish uh, pita or pizza that I had when I was in Istanbul and I came home now where did you have it just I had it um, it's this restaurant on the Asian side of Istanbul called Siya C-I-Y-A and this is a man who's bringing back all of the Turkish traditions in Turkey uh, because they were sort of wandering away from their traditional food. It's, it's a dream come true to go to this place. And he served this um, lamb pizza, essentially, that was rolled up like a crepe. I came home and I just absolutely had to recreate this. It took a long time of experimenting, which were all delicious, but I think the one we landed on in the book is just really pretty close to what I had there and it's it's fantastic. Jeff, did, where do you do your research? Anywhere, 24 <laughs> hours a day. Anything I might eat, I'm, anything I eat is, is liable. So I was at a party once and um, this friend, my friend Allison invited a, a Chinese student who didn't speak much English and he brought this Bing that you were talking about before mm -hmm. and I tried to talk to him, he was really shy and his English was terrible and he basically slipped away before he told me how to make it. And he, I didn't realize that it was rolled up right away. So I had to reverse engineer it. Um, so wherever you are, thank you right now. <laughs> Guy who didn't speak much English three years ago at Allison's uh, 50th birthday party. When you put together a, a book like this, just talk about the process of, you know, cooking the foods, the food styling, which is really important because, you know, 
the photographs of this book and of the food in this book make it all look really delicious. And that's actually really important to us as readers. We all go, I mean, as nice as the recipes are and as good as they sound, it's one thing to read a recipe. It's another thing to see Skillet Peach Pie and go, oh, my God, I'm going to have to make that <laughs> we tonight. We wish we could get the publisher to put a picture on every page, but then the book would be more expensive, which we also don't want. You left out the most important part of the process of creating the book, and that is fighting constantly with your co-author. Um, because for me, this book is partly about how men and women cook together. So mm -hmm. I, apparently, I'm told I make a giant mess and then get a phone call and leave, and it's, it's there. Uh, but Zoe's a professional chef, and so the kitchen is beautiful. The result is beautiful, and it's perfect. She's a professional chef, and I'm a regular guy who's kind of sloppy and, frankly, a little bit lazy. Um, and both aesthetics, and I will consider mine to be an aesthetic as well. It is. Both, exactly right. Both, both aesthetics are, are addressed in this book. So you can make it as fast as you can, but it's also going to be fantastic. Is that, is that fair? Did I? It's fair. I don't know that there was as much fighting as I, you I, I mean affectionately <laughs> fighting. Um, you know, one of the great joys of doing this is we would make, we, we bake, and then we get together and we share our recipes with each other and we critique each other and we sort of, well, what if you did this and this? It's an amazing collaboration, you know? So we sort of, we split the book up 50-50 and we come together and then we sort of work on everything together. It's great to be able to work on these things and have feedback from the other person. All now, kidding aside, I don't know how people do these alone. Yeah. I think I'd be <laughs> bored. You have like a collection of, you know, all these recipes. So you gather together these recipes and you have a pretty much a, a, a format. You have five soups mm -hmm. and boy, the potato soups are really oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. They're really good. I like that. That's terrific. That ling, uh, with the ling linguija? Linguija, yeah. I think that's how you say yeah. it. I, originally I had it in Spain. Yeah. And uh, it's made with Spanish sausage, but I know you can get linguija in a lot of American cities. And it's worth, it makes a, a big difference. It's really delicious. Yeah. So you have you figure out these things, and then um, how much of input do you have in terms of you know designing and formatting the book? And do you I mean in terms of you know interspersing the photographs and you know setting up because it's nice. Each of these books, you know, they're they're good together because uh, you can build on the knowledge you have from the other one. But any one of these books also stands alone. That's right. It was yes. meant to be so. You know, the the first book established a format for us. So there's a little anecdote about where we got the recipe in many cases, or, mm -hmm. or relatively short, the usual stuff, the yield, and, and we've we've decided to do them all about the same way. Get them to fit on two pages so people aren't intimidated. Mm. If it goes beyond that, it probably doesn't belong in our books. <laughs> it may be great stuff, but it's but it's not for us. And the publisher gives us almost utterly free reign about the contents. Uh, it's Macmillan, which it's actually Thomas Dunn Books, which is owned by St. Martin's, which is owned by uh, Macmillan. And they give us complete creative control. We don't have to, you know, have a hissy fit about, about what we want in the book <laughs> and how Jeff, we want to format yeah, it. Jeff had mentioned earlier that we wish there was a picture on each page. Um, but it's a little bit cost prohibitive, but that's where our website comes in yeah. because we mm -hmm. love photographs and we understand just like you're saying, if you see a picture of this beautiful pita or the peach skillet pie, you're going to want to make it. And we, we understand that. And so we have a website, pizzaand5.com, where we do a lot of picture essays to sort of augment the book. And mm -hmm. we also answer questions. So Jeff does the morning shift, I do the evening shift. 
we have a half million books out there and we have people from all over the world um, coming to our website and asking questions or or telling us about some fabulous bread they've just made and so we love that interaction in fact that's where the idea for the second and third books came from was our interaction with our readers where are your readers leading you next? I mean, this is, I'm guessing this is not the last what we'll hear of something so. in five minutes a day. Right. We, we want to see what the response is. We're trying to invade the entire meal with this store dough mm -hmm. technique, right? So we, put, we, we want people to figure out that it's the whole meal. And if they say, why don't you do the whole meal in five minutes a day? That's what we'll do. I think there'll always be some bread or at least bread sticks involved in anything we're ever involved with. <laughs> or croutons in your salad with little, little tiny pieces of cheese balanced on top. But this is sort of taken over how I cook at home anyway. And, um, you know, as a pastry chef, and I also blog about doing pastry, I've, through doing these books, I really understand that people are intimidated by baking, and mm -hmm. they don't need to be. And so our whole idea is creating amazing, real, gorgeous food in a way that's not intimidating, that's quick enough to do, um, and we try to sort of teach people and encourage people to do that. And so if it's the bread, if it's the soups and the meal, I now cook this way. It's like I don't have the, you know, once in a while I'll, I'll do a full-on Julia Child um, recipe, but now I don't have the patience for it. I want things that are that good but quick. And that's, I think, the direction that we're moving in. Well, I think that makes it more participatory for your both the people in your family and your readers because I can tell you that I'm exactly one of those people that if that recipe goes on too long or if I see like some note, you can get this ingredient in a specialty market or you can substitute dirt for it. Or mail away to Corsica for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah mail order to Corsica <laughs> for it. Uh, yeah, no, Participatory I, is key for us, and we think that this book, more than any of the others, is really concerned with having a party in mm -hmm. your house with pizza and we want to invite all of your readers to come to a worldwide pizza party in five on november 15th if you're on twitter it's hashtag pizza party in five five is the numeral and we're going to ask everybody to bake one pizza from our book or, or their own recipe if they want and make a suggestion and then stick the pictures up on their websites and we'll link to them or we'll put them on our site but it's going to happen in twitter space which is if you told me 10 years ago this is what we'd be saying right now, I'd have said this is, this is science fiction. But we well, want to have a virtual party where everybody gets together. Well, it is science fiction. We're it using science to uh, create something that could not have been created. And uh, I like this better than uh, Buck Rogers. I mean, you know, flying around in a exactly. jetpack is fine. But, boy, if you fall, that's a long way down. And you're eating your, your food out of a plastic tube. <laughs> yeah, no, plastic tube. I'm not a plastic tube. Too. That was always overrated, right. I that's think. That's why I didn't go when they asked me. <laughs> Let me just say that I'm really hoping one, one place you could take this that you really haven't. You've kind of done a little bit. Is desserts. Mm, I, I mean, good. dessert in five <laughs> minutes a day. Good. You got cinnamon because I've I've used this uh, many times the bread dough to make cinnamon rolls. Right, uh, I used a brioche. I would just roll it out in a sheet, put brown sugar on it, put some cinnamon, slather it in butter, roll it up, slice it up, bang bang bang. With white dough, not even enriched. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's totally doable. Yeah. The, the brioche, brioche dough. The brioche yeah. dough, yeah, mm -hmm. with with you know. 
10,000 calories per <laughs> per glance. <laughs> it's excellent. It's excellent. I highly recommend it to everybody. Well, you're a man after my own heart. So yes, definitely. There will be more and more of that in our next book. I have been speaking with Jeff Hertzberg and Zoe Francois. Their new book is Artisan Pizza and Flatbread in Five Minutes a Day. Thank you for joining me, Jeff and Zoe. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.